So it's just gone four o'clock on Tuesday, the 28th of February, and I'm here with Jono Tate. How are you, are you keeping this afternoon, Jono? Are you good? Yeah, we're good. We're good. Having a good Tuesday. Fantastic. But most importantly, across the valley, if I'm not mistaken, from Franschuk or Stellenbosch, you can tell us where. Absolutely delighted to be joined by James Stewart. James, how are you keeping this afternoon? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you, chaps. It's lovely to be here. It's Franschuk. It's the, uh, the, the wine capital of South Africa, and uh, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and I'm gainfully and manfully avoiding glasses of red and white of all descriptions until an appropriate <laughs> hour. What have you been busy with for the last few months, James? I know we've come out of a busy sort of festive period. I know you've been doing some shows, particularly with our last podcast episode guest, John Ellis. What's been keeping you busy in the meantime? So on, on a non-musical level, and I've, I've sort of found my way into a digital marketing agency called Achieve with a, with a partner who's a strategist in the, in the wine business. And uh, interestingly enough, the intersection of music there and all the things that I learned you know, sort of coming up as a musician and how to design flyers and how to market and how to reach the right people and how to grind and hustle, uh, record company stuff, the Napster, COVID, the interruptions and disruptions that go along with the kind of stuff has become a very interesting um, objective point of view in an industry that's sort of quite traditional, quite sort of closed-minded. So it's been fascinating to sort of bring my conversation into that place. And essentially what I'm doing is building digital sales funnels um, as you mentioned recently, John's moved down to Cape Town, as, as you know, a musician that I've admired from afar for quite some time. We, you know, a couple of coffees and he slid out here one, one weekday afternoon or morning or whatever, pulled his guitar out, started noodling with a sort of a sort of lacerated finger, no less. And, and it was kind of quite immediate. You know, it's a little bit like, I suppose, falling in love in a sense. You know, there are quite a few, there are lots of fish in the sea, but it's only every now and then that something just clicks and connects and you know it immediately. So that's been very exciting. And it's also, you know, it just sort of just takes you back to the essence of everything, which is kind of where you guys are sitting right now as well. You know, Elma Cafe, that, that little place of community where it all really happens. It's ground zero. Everything that happen, happens in the music industry and, and as we go forward is a sort of a, an extrapolation of that, putting up a poster, getting something on the radio is all just sort of a, a copy version of what really happens where it really happens, which is in front of people in an environment where that's been set up to to sort of really kind of hang on, on on every word that the musician says. So it's been very special. We've played quite a few shows and we've played Elmer twice, as you know, and, and it's just it's just really cool to sort of get back into that um, or to be just re reintroduced, if you like, to that, what it's all about. You know, so it was Cafe Roo on the weekend and it was just fantastic and, and looking forward to Elmer Cafe in, in, in March again. So feeling good about stuff. Are you guys writing much together or is it more just now trying to... I guess between the two of you, it's much more a case of trying to whittle down to, oh my God, what songs are we actually going to play that we all know and have to leave out that horrible moment where you're going, fuck, can I really afford to leave this song out? Between the two of you, there's a quite substantial catalog of material. Or are you going like, to hell with all the old stuff we're playing, we're writing new stuff and that's that's our gig? If I was to continue with the with the falling in love metaphor, <laughs> I would say that we're 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 sort of dating heavily at the moment. So it's all it's okay. all it's all magic and mystery. It's, it's been quite surprising how many similar influences we've both got. So we've just been exploring whatever songs we felt like. I mean, there's some staples that we feel we we kind of have to play. Yeah. Um, so but it's, it's kind it's, of kids it's from previous marriages, and then you're practicing making your own kids <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they, if we decide to have children together, that's going to be, that'll be a step forward. But I mean, there are all sorts of interesting, silly little things like, is it going to be Stuart and Ellis or Ellis and Stuart? You know, it's, I mean, it's fantastic that ego is still kind of 
matters, you know, <laughs> or, or doesn't matter or whatever. Yeah. So we're working our way through it. But the long and the short of it is, is that, um, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's been quite some time since uh, since people have actually been taking the trouble to sort of, you know, write reviews on our social posts about the show they were at and how much they enjoyed it. So the stuff coming back is just really heartening and fantastic. It makes us feel good and we're just going to keep doing it until we can't anymore or, or, or sort of runs its course or whatever or whatever may happen, you know, how to scale it, whether we add instrumentation to it or not. There are all sorts of possibilities. We definitely want to get a little bit of recording done just to get a sense of if we can maybe get some of the, that magic down live. It's interesting, you know, you come, you know, John plays every night, so he's he's sharp. You know, his voice is is kind of in you John, you've played with him as well. So you know mm. he's kind of precise, like a he's if runners run, you know, and we and musicians play. So for me playing once every sort of you know, three to six weeks, I'm kind of not as sharp as I need to be. So I'm working hard on getting back back, back up to speed. So when I hear recordings coming back, I kind of, there's a little bit of cringy stuff going on, going like, do I really? So I'm kind of, you know, uh, maybe some people don't notice, but that's just the way it is. So as much as I'd like to just say, hey, we'll do a live recording, there's a little bit more to that. It's got to be, it's got to be aces, you know, it's got to be great. <laughs> James, I, I asked John, and I'm going to ask you the same question about collaboration and how that collaboration is maybe different at this more mature period of your life as a musician, as perhaps it was different to the days of the usual back with a band, and that's a collaboration in its own way. But you've collaborated as a solo artist for many years now. And you know, how has that collaboration changed? And what's the different dynamic between the band and a series of collaborations where you step in and out of that? It's a good question that the other collaborations of sort have been sort of straight up commercial writing, you know, for like film and TV and whatnot, where that's probably on the one side of things where there's a brief and it's kind of on brief or it's not on brief. So you're, you're kind of less, you're certainly creatively engaged and enrolled in it. You want it to be perfect and good, but the decision's not with you. So that takes a certain pressure off it. Then there's also the, the collaboration in the band stage is so organic. Um, you sort of meet people, people come and go, the you know, then eventually this thing settles and you've kind of got this energy that you, that you groove with. I mean, those things shift and change as well as, as people sort of decide whether the various contributions and that often wrecks bands and stuff, it often creates pressure. And then so a maturity, I think there's the, the difference between writing songs for just the sake of writing songs, which is a gardening for gardening's sake, as a, you know, as, as opposed to, you know, I'm, I still find myself kind of a little bit sort of immature in the sense that are kind of being attached to my own ideas to a certain extent. But we're finding our way. There's that sort of level of trust that develops over a period of time and just sort of understanding each other's instincts and where they go. And that's that'll obviously meld into us giving each other more freedom with each other's ideas. So it's a natural extension of where we're going. I have no doubt about that. And I'm hoping we can write songs that are twice as better than than the songs we've written independently. You know, that, that or three times better. You know? Well, well <laughs> you, you, the bar is high. So. <laughs> well, that's always the goal. It, it it really is the goal. I mean, this commercial this commercial songwriting kind of thing. It sounds like a bad word, but but the reality is, and it's probably it underpins every creative. I'm sure is there's this innate desire, fundamental desire to want to connect. So in my kind of sense, I'm functionally lazy to a certain degree. And I mean that not in a, as a disservice to myself, but I kind of, I want to kind of create the most amount of impact with, with the least amount of heavy lifting, you know? So it sort of amen, informs brother. the style. Of kind of yeah, amen. Why, why get complicated? Like, fuck no, that. Seven chords with two will do, for goodness sake. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Three chords in the drum. Yeah, so, so, yeah, that sort of uh, simplicity and... Look, I'm aware of. I'm aware that I can hold a, a certain space with a vocal, which is a huge bonus. You know, it's a, and, and I'm not saying that because I know that. I'm saying that because I experienced that. I can see that people are paying attention and listening to that that ele element. Ele did I say elephant? Elephant. 
That, you know, that elephant in the room. Oh, no. Here's the podcast title right there, James Stewart and the Elephant in the Room. There's your band name, mate. <laughs> the Elephant in the Room. There we go. I want to take you right back to one of the collaborations yes. that you talk so fondly about and going and poaching from Bright Blue, if, if I remember correctly, with Tom Fox. You allude to, in some of your storytelling, when we've heard you play about that night, I think it was an anti-conscription gig you were playing and you, you heard Bright Blue play the classic song Weeping and obviously had a massive impact, not just in terms of your own writing, but also in terms of that thing you talk about, the level of your game and how important it was to say, crikey, I need to get my act together. If that's the level. I'm asking you to indulge me to take us back mm. to that period of that transition of putting the usual together with Tom Fox and ultimately your other bandmates. And then going on what I would argue is one of the great success stories of South African music of that era. What are your recollections of it? How did it come about? And sort of the highlights and lowlights that you might want to reflect on. And can I add in there as well, what what was the, uh, when you guys put the band together, what were you thinking? Was it a, let's go right. and be the biggest band in the world or? Yeah, that question. So the story of Tom's involvement from the outset, what predates that is I had a second avenue, the cassettes. I can't remember what I was on the B side, to be honest. It might have been Talking Heads. I'm not sure, but it was on that old BS, BASF cassette that was in the car stereo that was up and down the West Coast to Airlines Bay and surfing trips and stuff. So that was, it was palpably South African. There was no, and that in and of itself wasn't terrifically clever. There were just songs and words and, and sentiments and, and sensibilities that I just completely identified with. I just, there was this feeling of, of homeness. And I didn't, and as much as I love, and I'm, I'm a police and sting, et cetera, I'm, I've got huge influences that, I've, that I've, I care very deeply about that are, that are offshore based. There's nothing quite like, and I, it was the same with hearing A Million Lights by 363 when I finally worked, connected the dots. I mean, it's like, it was a similar thing. This is, first and foremost, I love the song. So it just takes that whole local is lacquer nonsense out of the equation because honestly, local is lacquer when it's lacquer. It's as simple as that. There's no, there's no duty on us to like things because they come from a certain neighborhood. We like them because they connect with us. You know, I don't mean that as a commercial thing. There's a sort of a like a like a blackmail involved there, which is hopeless. It, it can't it can't emotionally work. So I, there's the sense that these songs are ours. They're mine. This is my music. So with that in mind, you know, Tom Fox was always front of mind. This guitar player, kind of just. I mean, I've never honestly I've played a lot with him. I've spent a lot of time in the studio, and I've never heard him sound shit. He says he's had an off day from time to time. But as far as a considered steeped in his own sense of, of beauty, I, I, I mean, Tom's quite easily the guitar player that, that would play for my life if it ever came to that. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's fanboy stuff for sure. But, but so when he moved down to Cape Town, he, he lived, he was born here and moved up to Johannesburg and him and Kerry had their young kid, Jamie. And they moved down here because I think the Brightview might be sort of might have been sort of seeing its last days or whatnot. But they wanted to bring their kid up here. And when that news hit, the incarnation of the usual wasn't around. The guitar player that was involved had to go off to go and pay his penance. He'd be his company had paid for him to be at university, and he had to go and obviously go and work for them to pay it back. So that that was all nice. And, I, and Street Level Studios was going quite nicely. So I was doing a heck of a lot of commercial work, and I just booked Tom for every single guitar session that I had, regardless of the style. I mean, on the one hand, it's a good call because Tom will never fuck it up. Tom's not really a heavy metal guitar player or whatnot, but he could play just about anything. And I just sort of, you know, with a sort of a strategy in mind, because I, I sort of, I sort of knew where I was going. Um, I wanted to be around this dude. It was obvious. It was like sort of, you know, the hot chick that just moved into the neighborhood. You know, it's like, how do I get to get, how do I get to have coffee with this person? You know? So booked him for everything, and then uh, asked him if he would produce two singles, one of which we, two songs, one of which we'd co-written. 
and the other one was the shape that I'm in, which was in a different format. And he used that as the, and he said, okay, well, who's going to play bass and drums? I said, I don't know, just the guys. And, you know, you and Paul were waiting in the wings. And there, that would have been a Tuesday night. That was typically our night in street level studios. And we knocked those songs out on an eight track. And it was amazing. It was, uh, Tom had sort of pulled things to pieces. He'd reduced, you know, taken a middle eight out and really simplified things to sort of the four chord structure that we know it and it had a profound effect on the song. And that, that tape, I don't know if you remember that tape, but it sat on the on the top of the console and, and I, I played it to anybody who listened, but I just couldn't quite bring myself to express how confident I felt about it because I just wasn't sure. And it's the same with all songs. I think you're kind of insecure about all of them until you get this amazing feedback. But anyway, I think it finally just got, input, it got put into the BMG overnight bag with or without my consent, I don't know. And it found its way up to 5FM and it just sort of, it was the right song at the right time. You know, they were pushing local pretty hard. Tom kind of had conditions as well. He said, well, I mean, he didn't actually say the words, but he certainly implied them quite heavily. He's like, no more police for you because you sound literally too much like them. Um, and I was. I was I, 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 when I talk about a sort of a, you know, a paucity and a kind of a efficiency or a, you know, a minimalist type thing, that's the police, really. It's the space and all that kind of good stuff. So Tom said, you know, uh, and we're not going to be focusing on copying somebody from Boston or, or Los Angeles or New York. There's plenty to copy from here. And I was totally gay. So we stole vocal harmonies from the Soul Brothers and organ parts and guitar parts. And we just synthesized this thing into, and we took a fair, you know, a little bit of shit for it. Kind of like this wannabe kind of like Afro band or whatnot, but we didn't care. And with regard to kind of wanting to be the biggest band in the world, I mean, that's the only objective. I mean, not in some kind of totally ego-driven, but in the in the bottom, it's like, yeah, I mean, cheapest. You've got, you got yeah, yeah, Paul Tizard, Yo-Yo Bass. Tom Fox and James kind of in this collective and a song that seems to hit and a song that could hold its own unused eight track quarter inch tape that sort of up to the top of the charts and got all the playlists that it did. Um, we didn't have any special connections. We were from Cape Town. We weren't from Joburg. So there was no like, we didn't know the DJs or anything like that. So this thing just kind of happened and that was enough for us to go, we're onto something here. This just feels good. What year was this? 19? Well, the end of 96, 97. And I'm just going to slide in here because I know Peter's going to piss himself. About a month ago, I was sitting in the spur on a Sunday night and I voice note James and I go, hey, check your songs playing in the spur. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, still playing. It's amazing. Years later, you know, it's still banging through the radios. It's still, that's not a quintessentially South African experience. You know, I don't know what is sitting in bloody spur having a burger, right? But Jono, there's, there's, there are not very many compliments more meaningful no seriously i get the friends of the business business associates of lauren who have come to know and stuff and they'll say yeah you play i get these things back and the people come up and say i fell in love to your song or like shine was like you know the, one of the yeah. you know, man like me first song at our wedding it's like wow i mean you can actually like make this kind of difference it's like you know it's it's just anyway, a sensational thing to be able to do it really is yeah i'm thinking again back to that period and i'd, I'd arrived in south africa august september 94 and I'd come from the UK where Oasis were blowing up, big fan of the live music scene and quickly sort of fell into the South African version of it. You know, I'm thinking of bands like Trifunk Era, Vonneboom, yourself yeah. as the usual thing. And I mean, that whole scene at the time, it seemed like the the, the old sort of blueprint of you you tour hard, you tour. I mean, I remember you, there was there's always a sort of Christmas period where there'd be the tour along the coast. And, you know, whether it was Roxy's up in Joburg, whether it was uh, down here in in the Cape Town space, it seems to me that, first of all, the sort of the competition that must have existed between the bands, and again, pushing the idea of trying to be the best of a pack that was emerging, a very unique sort of South African sound that was quite special at the time, and that I certainly picked up on. How difficult is it, do you think, now, 
in 2023 where to be a young band, to me, it must be almost impossible to do that, to replicate that time and place. Is that a fair assessment or am I missing missing the point that you could still do it, but to make a living out of it and actually make a go of it? Oh, those are two very different questions. And to a certain extent, you're really just pushed to, your, your, your desire is pushed. How badly do you want this? I mean, fortunately, I was young. I didn't have kids. Um, I had no real kind of financial commitments. I dug what I was doing. But also remember, the usual itself started in 1991 or something. So with Carl van der Leck, we had that guitar player. You know, I played bass and then somebody else joined and this happened, blah, blah, blah. So all those kind of, so there was this whole journey. Like if we, if we use a parallel like the Elmer Cafe, how difficult would it be to start a venue from scratch now and expect it to be full every, you know, every night or every Friday? It's an organic journey that takes some time. It takes pain. It takes real kind of passion and commitment. It's, it just doesn't happen by accident. So I think there is a, a possibility. I remember the same conversations. There are no venues. There's no this. There's no that. The record companies don't give a shit. Blah, blah, blah. I remember the same conversation. It's extraordinary. But you, um, worked, you worked 10 years for your overnight success. Yeah. That's rung true since time immemorial, really. Fortunately, we were able to back the shape that I mean up with some other songs. It wasn't a flash in the pan kind oh. of situation. Tom was a fair bit older than us. He had a kid. He wasn't that keen on getting out onto the road. So we kind of went when we need to, needed to. We didn't, I mean, if you compare us to, and our profile to the, the Springbok nude girls, they weren't getting nearly, I mean, if they were getting any airplane besides the alternate and the, the campus stations, but yet they were out on the road and just doing it and making it happen. I mean, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, nude girl stories. I mean, the first time I saw them was at the Nelson year at Stellenbosch at the students union and I, they were supporting Johnny Clegg and I got some tickets to go and see Johnny Clegg and check this band. I mean, I didn't know who they were and they were making like a huge racket now, like, but clearly kind of enigmatic and kind of, and it was like, people love this band. I mean, they love this band. And it just felt like maybe I just like sussed it out and like sussed onto it, but it just felt like it just overflowed and took off from there. But they'd been in it for quite some time as well, you know? So the misconception these days is because, you know, digital is immediate. There's the sense that we can do things faster, that you can, that you can build meaningful relationships with listeners that have got a lot on their mind and a, and a lot clamoring for their attention. And there, there is that. There's a high, high, high density of music. And of course, radio has changed completely. I mean, it's always, John, you'll agree, it's always going to be about um, the song. There's no question about that. And if, if you've got a song that can take a beating and be pulled around and pushed around and still kind of stands up, then it's just a matter of persisting with it. Breaking out of South Africa was a different situation altogether. And then you realize, hey, man, ambitious guys from Cape Town, do we want to crack Joburg or do we want to crack New York? It's like, fuck Joburg. <laughs> it's very easy to get stuck in that myopic South African thing. Where in actual fact, what we really wanted to do, because also flushed with the whole South Africanness of South Africa and this whole new story that were, that was unfolding around us, and we felt that we were part of, and Bright Blue certainly were. And there was this idea that, wow, I mean, imagine we could take this flavor to the world. You know, imagine, imagine that. It would be cool. So that's a long way of answering your questions. I would say, to a large degree, expecting too much too soon is obviously just silly. You can have a flash in the pan and have a viral video with because you's all or whatnot, and and then. It's really can kind of have such success that there's no way of really marrying up some kind of follow up to that, which is, I mean, so many bands have struggled with that. Sure. Like a huge success. And then, and then can't quite, they, don't, they haven't quite figured out who they are or where they are. And they can't quite sort of track that same trajectory. What brought the usual to its sort of conclusion? Was it just the, the various band members moving on or what was the actual final? Because it was, it was clearly going places, certainly seemed like that from a fan. And then all of a sudden it was, it was no more. I, I could look at it. In a couple of different ways, I've never been majorly prolific as a songwriter. I mean, we've been through managers and agents and that, they're kind of all the same thing. You know, that everything is like 20% of how much, you know what I mean? And, and that's the reality. You can't, the reality 
you can't live on 20% of how much, you know. So managers were always part-time or agents were always part-time. They're doing other things. And you always kind of got a sense that I could probably do it better, you know, better myself because I owned the studio, running the publishing company, running the record company. You had the relationship with, you know, Sony, BMG and all that kind of stuff. So there was quite a lot on my shoulders, which was fine. That's what I accepted. So the relationship that we had, we were signed to Street Level, which is, a, as you remember, that independent record label that I co-owned with Richard Black. And BMG, we had a marketing relationship with them, a national marketing and distribution relationship with them, which basically said that they could they could opt to sign us directly to Sony BMG at any time they wanted to. So if they felt like we'd hit the spot that they were super interested, then they could then they could exercise that option. And at that time, you've got you know the four guys, and then there's you, and then there's an A&R guy that thought you were shit in the first place, now thinks you the best thing since sliced cheese. And then you've got some other dude, and you've got so-and-so telling you this, and you've got so-and-so saying, well, can we just do the interview with you, and not the other dudes? It's like, well, yeah, yeah, all this kind of stupid shit that we've all heard before. And it starts tugging and pulling. And it's, more importantly, at the things that you're supposed to be doing, which is hiding away and being these four rebels saying, fuck you to the rest of the world, and this is what we're doing. And we love it, so you're probably going to like it. And that kind of just, I look at bands and what they go through, like Fleetwood Mac. I mean, the kind of drama that they've managed to survive. You know what I mean? I go like, geez, just on an emotional level, I don't think I'm capable of it. So I think maybe when you've got a heck of a lot to lose financially, it probably just, but more and more you hear about these bands that they get on stage and they leave stage, they get into their own limos and they just separate and go. And I think to a certain extent that could probably contribute to the sort of the intensity of the music and all that kind of stuff. But it became a little bit, we were self-produced and the idea would be that maybe we get somebody else to produce us. So we got a guy called Peter Reggie Bowman who produced a Just Ginger album that did so well. Because he's an Australian guy, right? He's an Australian guy. And for whatever reason, we went over to, to Melbourne and BMG were ready to spend lots of money on us and an expensive video and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it's sort of just sort of maybe a hurdle we just weren't able to get across, you know. Um, Interesting. We'd, it was a great record, I think. And I think just just probably just run out of puff, ran out of puff a bit, you know. Coming back to sort of the ability of playing venues, you've said that it's actually not always that difficult. You will find the venues if you're looking hard enough. I want to sort of bring you back to your first experience of this place being the Alma Cafe and recording mm-hmm. recording from here, even though we're online, we've been spending a lot of time doing the recordings here. I've got my own impressions of how I remember walking in. I think it was to see you actually <laughs> the first night about eight years ago. But I mean, if you take it back from a, a, a performer's point of view, what is, what is your recollection and, and, and why do you think certain sort of venues like here are so important within the sort of live music scene here in South Africa? The, the amazing thing, Peter, is that we also, that we feel we need to explain this because it, it, it is so fundamentally kind of like we mentioned earlier, it is essential. It's the alpha of everything, you know, a place with a decent sound and people, most importantly, the sort of culture. And I don't mean that as like a hard culture. I just mean a kind of a, this is where music lives. I need to rack my brains and figure out how I was referred to Elmer, how I got, how I got the contact. But it, from the first moment, it was like, hi, it's James. And like, it seems funny, but they, they knew who I was. So this is like deep in post solo stuff and post midlife crisis and all that shit, you know, the sort of like finding my way back to sort of just doing something that I felt would matter. Um, and also pushing myself because it's a hell of a thing to not have Tom Fox playing behind your singing all of a sudden. You know, I never had to get, I never had to get any good. Tom was, you know, it's like, so my guitar playing was adequate <laughs> and piano playing had to come on so so it was really a, an opportunity to sort of see see where i was you know i'd like to step in here for a second uh, if i may i remember my parents being incredibly excited they were like oh yeah. fucking shit we're getting james oh wow yeah fuck dude like when they got a phone call from you they were like Ooh, like little kids in the back <laughs> being like oh my god awesome. so exciting and i'm and i'm obviously a kid and i'm like who's james stewart and they're like just go and fucking Google it. 
And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing there either. He's a movie star. That's fair enough. No, I want a skateboard. All right. No, there's a there's an African American motocross rider called James Stewart. Oh, right. there was. Not such a big deal anymore, but it was like it was huge. <laughs> Yeah, but my folks quite were, a few of them. I was like, never going to get jamesstewart.com, put it that way. And then the other thing that, I mean, it's surprising for me to hear you say that that you felt about the keys and the guitar playing, because, I mean, I've only ever experienced you as being bloody brilliant. It's always interesting for me to hear musicians of your caliber and your, for want of a better word, I suppose, or a bit of description, but status to go like, oh, I was a bit fucking nervous about having to play music, you know? Yeah. No, it must be that way. There's, without being silly, it's sacred. <clears throat> There's a duty and a responsibility for me to give my best. Not just, yes, because people have been paid. It's not, it's not about the money. It's the exchange. I, I want to give a good account of myself here, and I want to respect my abilities. You know, I don't want to fuck around. Um, I'm either going to do something or I'm not going to do something. I don't want to go and just sort of have a hack. So yeah. that doesn't imply that I need it to be perfect and I'm super over-rehearsed. But there's a sort of a, you know, especially on your own, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, fully accountable. I mean, I've had my teeth knocked off on stage and fallen over backwards in front of 5,000 people. So I'm, I've had my fair share of embarrassing and like orky moments. In that context, you know, if you're kind of cool with it, there are no fuck ups, which is kind of cool. And, and that's where intimate spaces of, of 50, 60, 70, 80 people are most forgiving because, uh, you know, there is a sort of disarming element to it where if you sort of hit a horrendously wrong note or something like that, there's a, a wink of the eye or whatnot and everyone can see it. And sometimes even it's sort of maybe it's a bit of a kick up the arse and also kind of everyone appreciates that it's all kind of just part of the whole whole deal and sometimes makes the evening, you know. But to rock up at a place and just sort of see, okay, so this is clearly a little a beautiful cafe. It's There's like, there's, there's, there's toffees and stuff on the walls and then you know the lights get turned off on the fridge because it's ambient and they're very very particular about getting things right we're going to create sort of a, a nurturing environment for you and we know you're going to deliver because you know musicians when introduced to a certain kind of chemistry it's, it's a natural reaction you know so and i mean i can still hear the, the lightest tap of cutlery on sort of on sauces and stuff coming from the back in the kitchen they're washing up sort of just absolutely quietly like everything was absolutely about the music without being like a Nazi, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm being silly about it, you know? And I just thought like, this is an amazing kind of responsibility to myself uh, primarily and also to these people that have come to sort of enjoy this moment with me. It was very, very, very special. But most importantly, it took me precisely back. You forget because you don't know when you play your first gig. You don't know what you, what you then learn, you know? And you realize, so I'm driving back. To, to Franschuk on the N1, and I've, you know, it's just a simple, beautiful straight road, and I, the weather was quite nice, and I was just sort of on cruise control or, or whatever, just with this sort of feeling that, you know, sort of trying to identify what, what is this feeling, because it's definitely a nice thing. And it was a feeling like, if I could do this every night, I would, and I thought, wow, that's exactly how I used to feel back in the day. I couldn't, I got to a gig in two weeks, and I had butterflies for two weeks. It's all I wanted to do, you know? And most importantly, I felt like I'd achieved something. I'd done something. I'd connected. And that's when I realized, okay, this is actually why I do this. And it married very, very thoughts cross time, you know. And I could see myself in the June, July holidays looking at this video, the police live in Atlanta. And I watched the whole thing, rewind it, watch the whole thing, rewind it, watch the whole thing, rewind it. <laughs> and the end, it was produced by Godly and Cream. And the end credits sort of started on this final chime of of so lonely and it just repeated this they just had this chime on repeat and i just sit there going like wow imagine making people feel like i feel now i mean imagine that and it took me straight back to that moment and i think like i'm doing it okay there are not fifty thousand people there but i'm doing it 
so then it's like, well, can I do this? You know, if I could do this every every night, I would like to do it like this. You know, so how do you scale it? All that kind of nonsense starts coming in. Ah, that's the record company kind of chatter starting to come back. So it's all very familiar. So the Elmo, the Elmo was certainly a rebirth of sorts. It was the gig where I kind of rediscovered why I do, why why I would like to carry on doing what, what I'm what I'm doing. There was definitely a phase prior to that where I can do this and I could get certain gigs at certain amounts of money, and and that's important because I got bills to pay like everybody else. But there was a sort of an absenteeism to a certain degree. Professional, doing a good job, but it takes gigs like that to realize the actual why, the real why. The, the song Weeping was clearly an important song, I think, for South Africa in the whole, that whole transition period. Very much a sort of anthem for South African music. You, you use it a lot in your set, James, just your reflections on that and why it's an important song for South Africa. Well, I mean, it came from a significant band. Cape Town band that, that became a South African band and it sort of showed what four guys from a similar neighborhood could do when they put their, their thoughts together. I kind of grew up listening to their first album and by the time The Rising Tide came out, they were like a proper band, you know. And Dan Heyman, obviously not to mention Tom Fox, but Dan Dan Heyman is a genius. He's a, he's a I don't know if you've had the pleasure of actually seeing him play keyboards live, but he's got an, a natural ability, which is just, he can just, some people, some people can pick up a tennis racket and just play tennis. Dan can just play but he's got a very specifically South African sound and he's proud about it. He's, you know, it's like gospel. He knows exactly where everything comes from. Um, and he's got a very specific delivery and voice, which I kind of aspire to that. It takes a bit of something to step out and stand out rather than just sort of hang with the crowd, you know, and, and Bright Blue were that. They synthesized South Africa. You know, we had all that, a whole bunch of white stuff and a whole bunch of black stuff and Bright Blue were these guys that just managed to just sort of bring us the very best of the potpourri, you know. So... Um, Weeping is an example of what songs can be, which is a well-constructed and crafted story and you know something that has significant meaning or metaphor, and it's all there, the monster behind the house and, and all that kind of stuff, and just executed exceptionally well. And who knows why these things have the legacy and, and rich sort of timeline that they do, except they're just broadly loved and liked. And I, I don't have any other explanation except it, it must be magic. And I, I mean that in a, in a sincere way. So when I when I saw specifically when I saw it live, it, it jolted me and kind of thought, okay, cool, I'm a songwriter. But first of all, there's an affirmation that songs of this caliber can be written in South Africa. That's very important because everything was so internationally focused. And secondly, if I'm going to write songs, this is the benchmark. So significant. And then obviously, just you know, as a pianist, getting into those chords and just seeing how they work, you know, these root substitutions and how gospel kind of fairly simple kind of concept once you get into it, but they're very emotive sounding chords, um, sixths and uh, root note substitutions that just make all the difference to the sort of the tension and the emotion of the song. It opens up so much language without without really kind of stretching too much. Three notes that exist in any triad and you just play around with those roots and they just, you can hear it's still the same chord, but it's just not. It just changes um, Changes the vibe, yeah. Exactly. It suggests a different a mood. Well, that was all there in that in that song. The fact that it's also beautifully put together and tied up nicely as a as a pop song. Yeah. That cat, you know. I'm sure there's plenty of protest songs that we've never heard of that are that are content-wise far more significant, perhaps. But to take it the step further and put it into a beautiful bundle that you can present and everyone goes like, I know exactly what you're on about. And I know exactly from the first note. It's a very, very, very special. And, and, well, it's and, the sound and, of zeitgeist. Your song, Born in a Storm, I've always thought of as a companion piece to, to Weeping, like part two, chapter two, if you like, of, of Weeping. Hmm. I think it, it complements, the, the two songs complement each other a lot. How did you feel when you heard 
when the two of you, John and yourself, did the collaboration, you heard John sing that song. Weeping what, Now or Born in a Storm? Born in a Storm. Come on, man. I mean, if someone like, when John says, like, I'm doing this song, it's like, go for it, dude. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was my attempt at weeping, but it was certainly my attempt to kind of sort of lay down a marker about how I felt about being who I was, which was a 20s or early, th- yeah, late 20s, something South Africa. And, you know, people were throwing bricks and shit at cars on bridges and it's, everything was on a knife edge, you know, and like got this option, you know, do I stay, do I go, do I leave? And then you find yourself in Betty's Bay. I'm Stuart, you know, so there's the Scottish, you've never been there, but if you know Betty's Bay, there's a sort of this highland kind of, especially below the nature reserve there, there's this sort of highland type feel and there's that broody sort of leaden winter weather which Betty's Bay is renowned for. Um, and also the surging tide, sort of just pulling pulling rocks, like the clattering sound of rocks as, it, as they as they wash in and out. It was like, you know, one of the one of the few times where I went back to the room and sort of said, I got a song. So yes, it's got a it's got a, mourn, a mournfulness to it. And yeah, it's a, we I played it again on Friday night. And when we get it right, it, it really kind of gets the message across. Yeah. Can we come back to this sort of obsession? I'm gonna call it that because I think you've described it as that with with Sting and the police. Obviously, they your voice in many of the ways that sort of that sounds like oh, it's, particularly my friends back in the UK when I was like, gotta hear this band the usual, and I was like, that sounds fantastic. It, it sounds like the Police. It sounds like a Sting. I say, yeah. Anything that I say is going to be you. You're just going to say, well, yeah, that was the '80s because there was so much. When I talk about something have having a kind of a specific tone and vibration to it, there was just so much going on in the '80s that there was a whole bunch of rubbish going on as well. But you could just dial through radio stations from alternative all the way through to pop and just hear nothing but. Bands that sounded exactly like who you knew they were, ranging from Cindy Lauper to Talking Heads to The Police to Madness to The Clash. It's like, oh, I know who that band is, you know? So the idea of having a sound is, was not a new thing. There was just something about this enormousness of, of nothingness that they were able to create, you know? Like Walking on the Moon, by example. You know, there's this sort of bass line and then this back to front bass drum thing, which you, I mean, we, we knew enough about reggae as you go, that's reggae, a chiming chord and and this voice, it seems like there's nothing going on, but it's, it's like a fucking airplane taking off, you know what I mean? So I was just fascinated with that. And I think just once you get a taste for something, it kind of it kind of runs with you. So yeah, it does a bit of an obsession to a certain extent. And then, and, and you just can't fault the progression of Sting's, you know, songwriting and storytelling and going like, come on. I mean, the dude knows how to put, put a story together, you know, and uh, it's what he does. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of other people that do that as well, but I just I just sort of, Got into that, and of course, you know, I also lo- I just loved the the idea that they had this pop sensibility, but but rock credibility. You know, they kind of were like a like a serious band, but they but they had like pop songs and pop in the sense that popular and accessible. And I get this, and I love it. You know what I mean? And constantly kind of moving. You know, um, I mean, if, if, to think back to that era. I mean, at one stage, they must have been the biggest on the planet at the time. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking back to my sort of junior school disco and listening to some of that stuff. You know, and it's still still going a bit like the Beatles almost timeless in some of the you know the the classic music that will be with us for for years to come so yeah. you, you chose well you chose your obsession well there's been a real kind of um come around again to the police music of late Andy Summers is now being held up as one of the f- just an absolute god of guitar which he is I mean and the guys are, he considers himself a jazz cat police yeah. is almost a little bit lowbrow for him and Sting was a was a jazz bass player, and obviously, I mean, 
Ian Stewart. It kind of, it reminds me, it's funny, this was ringing through my head while you were talking about the band and how they create such a sound. It reminds me in some way of that band from about 10 years ago, all UCT music graduates called Beatenberg. Did you ever come yeah. across them? Same yeah, kind I of did. thing. A trio who are all like astonishing musicians, trained musicians, and then turn their wiles to pop. Yeah, they, they were originally a band, they were originally called Nice. And Chris Tate at Street Level recorded them, and it was like, "Wow, that's really nice." Oh, really, were they <laughs> one of your one of your projects? Well, I had no idea. They were, they were no, they just it, they, we didn't sign them, but they used the studio, and since became Beatenberg. And I've had some, I've had some very kind of cool references between the usual and I mean, they usually used to be called Light Blue by the Light by the Bright Blue. Blue. Hilarious. We, we well, I, know, I actually don't know if that's just the Cohen Brothers. Because uh, Ian's got like a pretty sharp kind of brand. Um, but you're like, it's kind that's, of fun. That's a compliment, surely, Fuck to both, both, both of oh, So on, on Quicket, <laughs> on Quicket, which is what Cafe Rue is, people can leave reviews obviously quite easily. Maybe they get asked to, I don't know how it works specifically. But anyway, Lindy from Cafe Rue sent me an email with, with all the reviews. And there were about 10 there, nine of which were like, I mean, glowing and amazing. Like, wow, this is one dude called Rob who um, he said, yeah, definitely not our cup of tea. It's like a bit, mund- a bit mundane, sad, really. Like, in a, in a way, not sad as in like crap, sad as in like, like morose. You can't win them all, Jay. I mean, I, no, no, you certainly can't. I mean, it's, it's, and nine out of ten certainly isn't bad. I'll take those odds every single time. I was going to say that's just that there's one in every crowd. That's yeah, not, there's um, only one thing better than, than than not being than being spoken about, and that's that's uh, not being spoken. Not being spoken. <laughs> so what does the rest of 2023 hold for you? Where can people see, find out more about what you're doing and the collaborations that you're busy with? I'm a bl- little. I'm a busy body. A little bit busy body. I kind of. I, I've got these sort of other I- instincts around me when something feels like it's it's feeling at the moment, which is. John and I just sort of feels easy and, and, and you know, we, we, our relationship is growing and things are tightening up and we're getting a sense of what's what. But there's the natural instinct to sort of see, okay, well, if, if we can reach 80 people, 100 people at this gig and 50 people here and whatnot, how, how, how else, you know, what, what's the natural sort of road ahead for, for something like this? So being an independent musician at heart, well, you should go to Johannesburg because that's where the, the industry is. It's like, no, nah, I don't want to go to Johannesburg. Cape Town is where I live and it's, and it's nice. So we'll just do it from here. Yeah, but you know, the guys are blah, blah, blah. Is this John so pushing sort of, you to go to Joburg, or is this just no, no, no? This was this is just this is just no, no, no. I wouldn't go to Joburg if you're flipping. <laughs> if you're off the hey, careful, James. Joburg's very, very special for me. Joburg's actually, I don't know. Joburg what is very, doing. very special. It's it's very. I've got amazing memories of Johannesburg, but but going there to be part of the record industry is not high on my list. Other reasons, perhaps. Uh, the best weather in South Africa by a country mile. Some of the nicest people I've met. It's super easy to get on to, on, on with, and uh, yeah, I have have had some wonderful times. But the idea of sort of moving to sort of, I, I just feel more independent than that. Wrong or right? If I was going to move, it's got to be to New York or something. Oh, like I was that. I was, was thinking just just go up and play some gigs in Joburg, you know? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 a distinct possibility. But yeah, I'm thinking about how do, you know what does a record release look these looks like look like these days? What would be the smart ways of doing it? How could we make the most impact? Stay um, home and invest in, invest and in the, like a PR agent. The striking realization that we live in this world of content generation, content generators and influencers, when in actual fact, I've been a content generator my whole fucking life. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like some new Instagram thing. It's like I've been I've been building things that, or writing things that hopefully will, will just add it to, to please myself and hopefully will resonate with other people since since I can remember. 
So that's an interesting idea to not to, to sort of take it puts you squarely in it as opposed to outside it somehow. So yeah, I'm interested to see. We've got some ideas. So definitely some some recordings. I would say in a longer term, we're probably heading in the direction of heading off for a week somewhere and writing some songs together or something. And I'll be sort of vigorously kicking kicking it along and seeing how far we can push it and take it because that's just the way I'm built. Well, all the very, very best of that, James. I think we're all looking forward to seeing how that translates. And, you know, if it means more content for those of us who love the music that yourself and John put out, then that's a real bonus for us in 2023. I think you, you did mention you've got a, a gig coming up in March here at the Alpha. I have, yes. Sunday the 12th. Where you go? March. Sure, yeah. It's so soon. It's so soon. With that, I want to thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We've gone a lot longer than uh, I think uh, yeah, we've budget and for time. <laughs> oh, it's but, been so much fun. But thank you. And uh, all the very best for 2023, all, all your endeavors. We look forward to some new content, possibly. Certainly the, the shows with John and your own solo stuff. We look forward to keeping tabs with that. All the best to you, sir. And thanks for your time this afternoon. I believe this podcast is the start of probably great things. It's the first tiptoe into like, right, how do we take this Elmer thing that we built and nourished and nurtured all this time? How does it spill over into the rest of the world? And uh, it's going to be consistency and quality. And, and, and that's you guys are so used to that. It's, it's, it's a part of your stock in trade. Thank you very much, Peter and John. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for reaching out. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Peter. Nice to see you again. Cheers, John. 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 Che